Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, and we have got a great show for you today. We are going to be talking about the impacts that plant diseases have had throughout our human history. This is going to be a fascinating topic. We're going to be talking with Chelsea Harbach about this, but before we get to Chelsea, we must introduce our co-host with us every single week. We are joined by horticulture educator Ken Johnson in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken. Hello, Chris. How are you? I am uh, saying no complaints today uh, because we're about to get close to 70 degrees tomorrow. And it's going to it's March 15th right now. So I am um, I'm so happy right now. How about you, Ken? How are you feeling with this warmer weather? Well, I'm kind of the point now, if it's going to stay warm, I better stay warm. No more of this up and down so I can get all my plants outside and <clears throat> and be done with it. Yeah. Well, the plants are definitely ready to get outside. I, at least in my house, they are. They're like, you're killing us. Please send us outside. You know. Are you going to do any beard trimming? I got uh, an appointment with my razor coming up pretty soon. Uh, some trimming. Yes. Probably not clean shaven. Not clean my shaven. kids wouldn't know who I am. So yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll shave it down to about an, about an inch, but then, yeah, I got to keep it going because it keeps your skin hydrated. So it's really nice. Yeah. And when we get well, that sudden cold snap, it'll keep you warm. Exactly. That's right. You know, everyone else's faces are freezing and, and ours are like, Oh yeah. Insulation. Well, Ken, I know that uh, you have a, a particular affinity for um, diseases and insects and kind of the things that make uh, other people squeamish uh, and squirm. But uh, today, I think we got a pretty, really interesting topic about how plant diseases have affected our human history, like like just in pretty major ways. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Do you are you excited about this topic as I am? I am. So you learn, you kind of hear briefly about some of this stuff in, in classes and stuff, but never really too in-depth. So looking forward to it. I I am too. I, I, I love history and then I, I love plants. And so what better thing to do than merge these two subjects today? So let's introduce our guest for today, Chelsea Harbach. Chelsea, welcome to the show. Hey guys, I just got done shaving my beard. Oh, this is nice clean, clean shave. I love it. I love it. You could put your hair up maybe. And, and yeah. You could, yeah. Um, so Chelsea, you are a commercial agriculture educator with University of Illinois Extension. Whereabouts are you located in the state? Um, I, um, I well, so I work from the research farm that's outside of Monmouth. Um, I live in Knoxville. So I'm, you know, Western Illinois, not too far from you or Ken really in the grand scheme of things. And we got, uh, so a lot of fun projects happened in Knoxville. Knoxville is a beautiful town, you know, very, it's like walkable, mm -hmm. um, beautiful houses, nice schools. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. So well, we're happy to have you here with us, Chelsea, talking about plant diseases, but I, I really have to ask plants get sick for real. Like they, um, you know, 
I've been looking forward to this day for a long time um, because I had the Master Gardener uh, plant disease training this morning, and then I had this podcast in the afternoon, so I get a full day talking about plant diseases. And uh, one of the first things I told the Master Gardeners this morning um, is, you know, just like you and I get sick, plants can also get sick. You know, basically anything that's alive can get sick, and you know, we as humans have a particular affinity for plants and. So that's, you know, largely why we care about plants and the fact that they get sick. So human, I mean, we've been hearing, of course, about like uh, the coronaviruses, um, which is a virus, obviously. And um, we have bacteria, we have antibiotics for bacteria. Um, I get athlete's foot is a fungus. So are these all like plants? Are they also afflicted by these three disease causing organisms? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you know, the things that make us sick, we generally think mostly of like microorganisms. So we're talking about fungi, we're talking about bacteria, um, viruses, even nematodes um, are lumped in there as well. Um, And, uh, you know, we can see some of these things, some of these things we need um, microscopes to see, some of them you need special microscopes to see. Um, So they really vary in size, but all, all the same kinds of Um, microorganisms that make us sick have the same ability to make plants sick, but obviously they're different, um, different species. You know, we're not going to get sick from um, the sclerotinia sclerotiorum that causes white mold on plants. That's not going to make us sick similar to, you know, like the flu virus isn't going to make your begonia sick. They're, they're all specialized, uh, specialized, uh, specific species. So I can keep licking the powdery mildew off of my lilacs. Okay. So I'll, if that's your jam, go for it. <laughs> tastes great. I don't right. recommend it to I'll anybody. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it might've been you, Chelsea. I, um, we, we do a lot of these shows a year. But, and so if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Someone had mentioned, I thought it was you that they found the tobacco mosaic virus within the human genome like in our within our genetics and so something where so that wasn't me but that's believable to me for how um prevalent um tmv is and how mm -hmm. prevalent tobacco use is i'm gonna look into that though because that is really interesting but continue your thought because i do want to hear this out i'm sorry for interrupting (laughs) oh no that i was just like curious because i know as you mentioned the idea of a plant virus or bacteria jumping cross family trees, cross crossing kingdoms into mammals, like animals, um, uh, highly unlikely. But I think the idea that they found kind of these trace parts of tobacco mosaic virus within humans might suggest that at one point in time, long, long time ago, uh, that did at one point happen. So yeah, I just, I, someone had mentioned that on the show before. Ken, do you recall? Boy, I've drawn a blank here. I don't remember that. Maybe that was one of the ones I wasn't on. Oh, um, Ken, you're taking too many vacations. That, you know what that reminds me of is, I, I'm sure you know the the general concept of, 
you know, evolution and um, species development, but, um, you know, this concept that the mitochondria and chloroplasts in, in plant or so chloroplasts in plant cells and mitochondria in mammal cells um, are likely, um, you know, some sort of descendant of bacteria that were, um, you, you know, essentially like absorbed. That's why they have double um, lipid membranes. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just like a way for these organisms to continue functioning. I don't know. It's cool. Biology is awesome. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. I, I love the, so when someone, I remember in biology high school, someone we were talking about photosynthesis and then um, we would learn about animal cells and we learn about vitamin D conversion with sunlight in, in, in animals. It's like, wait a second. So we kind of also <laughs> have that capability like oh we used to be able to synthesize vitamin c from uh sunlight like why would we get rid of that oh man come on evolution Mm -hmm. Uh, right (laughs) so speaking of diseases are you which school of thought are you on when viruses are they living or are they not living oh man i have never decided truly (laughs) it's 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 something that like it's one of those things that just perplexes me and just like my mind goes around and around in a circle. I can't, I can't make a, a final like decision on that. It's <laughs> there's yeah. It's just too much for my brain. What about you? That's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have no, I mean, I could see arguments both ways, but yeah, yeah. that's, <clears throat> yeah. that's beyond my, my intellect to figure out mm-hmm. I, my uninformed uh intellect would say uh they're aliens that have been scattered across this planet from meteorites millions of years ago uh, maybe billions of years ago and uh that's uh, what a virus is because when like the structure in the animations it looks right. like a like a miniature sputnik or something like yeah. it looks like somebody like created that thing it looks like it's, it's weird looking and that's like only a specific type of virus, right? Is it? Those okay. the, yeah, th- those are like uh, the fa- the phage virus, bacteria phages, and yeah. stuff. Those are the aliens then, mm-hmm. the, the, like that have infected us now. Yeah, it's like your tobacco mosaic virus is just is just a rod, yeah, of stuff. But but it is really interesting because you know these, you know, they're just like nucleic, like strands of nucleic acid that like can't multiply on their own but yet they're made of something that is like we think of inherently as living so that's where my mind just like goes in those circles i can't make a decision i don't know they're, they're zombies, we'll yeah. zombies. <laughs> yeah. okay i like that better that's my sci-fi pick of the week because there's zombies <laughs> so getting back to uh plants and diseases here humans domesticated plants 10 12 000 years ago something like that and since then we've more than likely, we're definitely now dealing with plant diseases, um, and a lot of those have had significant impacts on civilization, thus today's topic. So let's start with ancient Rome. How was that? <clears throat> what was ancient Rome farm life? Like, um, like? Well, they, they relied heavily on wheat. Um, you know, as the Roman Empire expanded, they, you know, found wheat in, or they 
took wheat and brought it back. And, you know, that was like the primary, uh, like staple in their, um, what's the word I want to say in their diet. There we go. Um, and, uh, so it was, you know, grown wide and large across the Roman empire. Um, and, you know, as, as we, as humans have, you know, domesticated plants that we we're prone to growing things in, you know, more of a monoculture kind of way. Um, So that's kind of the way things were back then um, with wheat. Um, Obviously they grew other things too, but wheat was the big one and there was a lot of it and they really depended on it for, for their nutrition. And as things go in monocultures, there's usually, uh, it, it's kind of leaves you pretty open and vulnerable to, I guess, what you might consider like an opportunistic event. Of course, back then they did not know anything about like diseases. I mean, like obviously you knew when people were sick, but they didn't know anything about like plant diseases. They didn't know anything about microbiology. Um, so we're talking like ancient Rome, right? They're still worshiping the, the Roman pantheon of gods. Um, and, uh, so, you know, they would see the incidence of, um, like orange, rusty colored kind of like flecks on the stems in the spring. So that's why this discussion is timely. We're approaching about that time of the year where, um, where uh, this disease we might actually see um, on wheat. Um, so on, uh, they determined that it was like April 25th in, in our current calendar or not current calendar year, but our, you know, the calendar that we use now, um, is when the ancient Romes would, uh, perform or like have this, this, um, uh, ritual, uh, they called it robigalia, um, where they were essentially, um, like pandering to the gods, um, one specific God in general, um, they did not, they, it, it hasn't been like, there's no consensus on whether the God was like female or male. So like there's two different iterations of the, the God's name, but, um, we'll just go with Robius, um, which I think is the male version of the name. I think the, um, female version was Robia. Um, but they, you know, believed not knowing anything about microbiology, thinking more along the lines of like, um, what's the word? Superstition, basically, you know, with, with all the gods. Um, so, you know, they were trying to make the gods happy to try and stave off the incidence of this um, rusty uh, dark brown flecking on their wheat, which they, you know, over time noticed that this, this, the incidence of this symptom, this, which we now know as a sign, but I won't get into semantics of that. <laughs> That's for master gardener training. <laughs> um, but, you know, so they, they would notice that the incidence of, of this, 
these spots on the stems would you know, decrease their, their yield that would essentially lead to the plants dying quicker. So they wanted to find ways to help prevent that. And so they prayed to the gods mm-hmm. and that of course came along with some other things, this, uh, this, um, ritual. So the, I, I forget if I said already, but the, the ritual is called Robigalia. Um, April 25th. So if you want to celebrate Robigalia, be my guest, but I don't think people like Ken and I, I mean, I, I feign being a redhead. My hair is just like kind of reddish brown. I would say it's more Auburn. Um, but you know, my, my friend who is a full on redhead told me that like, you count as a redhead. She assured me. So I took her word for it. So I don't think Ken and I would be too happy about robigalia because well i mean they weren't killing people but they were sacrificing red-haired animals like dogs as a way to appease the gods and try and stave off the incidents of this malady that afflicted their wheat I would only suspect if the animals weren't working, they turn to the redhead next to them and say, you're next. I, know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I um. So when I TA'd for um, the introductory to plant path course um, in um, 2013 or 2014 and 2015, when Nate Schroeder um, came to U of I, he's uh, um, the nematologist on campus or one of them. Um, he, uh, so he actually, I, I don't know, you know, if his dog is still with us, but he had a, a red haired dog named rusty. And I mm-hmm. wonder if he named that dog specifically because he knew about rubigalia and <laughs> wheat rust, but yeah, I mean, my dog also has some red hair, so I really wouldn't like that. But I mean, what do you do? I mean, when you don't have microscopes, you don't know about diseases. Um, Everything back then was superstition. So things aren't working out with Robius. You go to Robia if that's not working out, you know, you got to, there's so many people to turn to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that would be, I couldn't do well then. Uh, but I'm, I'm using my modern day brain. I don't know. Maybe I, I would know. fit right in back then and just be like, ah, here's my red, red haired retriever. Uh, kill it. <laughs> I, I have to believe that, you know, they may, they likely didn't have the same affinity for their, their animals. the way we do now, I know even people in other countries think that Americans are crazy for how we like, you know, regard our, our pets. So <laughs> All my pets have their own voices that I speak to them in. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> Not crazy. It just makes yeah, sense. Yeah. So that, um, you know, the historians, you know, kind of discerned um, from, you know, what they could find in history that the um, the disease that the wheat was afflicted with was uh, stem rust of wheat. Um, and this I mean, this pathogen also, I mean, it, it, the, the historical significance extends beyond uh, Robigalia um, because uh, it was it, this pathogen. Okay. 
So there's a couple different things. It's number one, one of the most complex disease cycles uh, that you can learn in plant pathology. Uh, I remember probably spending a few hours trying to memorize it from when I took introduction to plant path. It's, it's a, it's a complicated disease cycle that actually requires two different hosts to complete the life cycle. So, um, you know, when, when stem rust became like a big problem in, um, I don't know, like the, the mid to, or I guess like early mid late mid, uh, 1990s in the U S um, there was a huge, effort to, um, to get rid of all of the barberry plants because barberry is the alternate host that's needed for this fungus to, um, to complete its life cycle. Mm. So I believe barberry was introduced, um, you know, kind of as a, pardon me, like a landscape plant. And it, you know, turns out it's, it's quite prolific. It's can be kind of invasive. Um, so there was like a huge effort to, to get rid of all the barberry, you know, as much as possible, um, to, to try and limit the, the amount of inoculum that's out there in the spring to go infect wheat. So then the other significance of, um, historical significance of uh, stem rust of wheat, um, ties into, uh, Norman Borlaug, who is like the, the progenitor of the, essentially the green revolution is what they called it. Um, and so he's a plant breeder, plant pathologist. He's actually, you know, he was born in Iowa. He, he worked up in Minnesota, but he spent a lot of time, uh, doing plant breeding on wheat to, um, I, there, there were a couple different purposes, but the, the big purpose for him was to, um, make plants that were shorter so that way they wouldn't lodge as much. Um, and then by having plants that, you know, can stand, uh, erect better, um, you are going to have an easier time applying like fungicides and getting more control of the environment. And there's going to be maybe a little less conducive than if the plants were lodged over. Um, but I believe he also did some work on, um, developing some wheat varieties that had some, some resistance to stem rust as well. So he, he really changed the, the limits, the capacity for wheat growing in, um, in the breadbasket in the middle East, um, that that's where he, like a lot of his work was applied and, um, and yeah, he, he was just an awesome dude, plant pathology turned plant breeder who, you know, father of the green revolution all because, well, not all because, but largely partially in part because of this same disease that the Romans were praying and sacrificing their dogs to, to, to stave off. So, you know, we came a long way in, uh, you know, a thousand or so years in, uh, in our advancement of managing this disease. I, I would say our pets are better off today. <laughs> and that's another reason why we should not be planting barberries. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I had to do some weeding in a field once and they were like some small, I mean, they weren't that big, but like I could tell they were barberry plants and they were not fun to try and get out of the ground. Yeah. Covered in thorns. And I've, yeah. so their neighbor has some of that crimson pygmy barberry is the purple leaf type. When they escape, 
they revert to their green form. At least they did it in my backyard. And so I didn't notice it at first, but then when I went to pull it and I got thorns in my fingers and I realized I looked closer like, oh, this is a barberry, not far away from the neighbor's crimson pygmy barberry. So mm. yeah, that's another lesson, folks. That's another <laughs> lesson. Yeah, we can definitely touch on that later too. <laughs> Well, Chelsea, shifting gears to a different plant disease. Um, I mean, we are coming up just a couple of days away from St. Patrick's Day. Actually, when people listen to this, it will have passed, but you should be celebrated into the weekend, folks. Um, potatoes and uh, Ireland or Irish folk seem to go hand in hand. Um, so I guess my first question is, Chelsea, when growing potatoes, why are, why are we tying the two together to Ireland? Why are potatoes in Ireland uh, linked? Um, well, so potatoes, okay. The, the Spanish conquistadors um, were the ones to bring potatoes back. Um, the Incas um, were the ones who were originally cultivating, uh, cultivating the potatoes. And, you know, as um, the world expanded, the, the, colonizers, uh, took, you know, took stuff for them. And, you know, the, um, uh, this book that I read, you know, says, you know, the, the Spanish brought back, you know, all the riches, they brought back silver and gold and jewels or something. Um, but you know, they didn't list the thing that was probably most valuable that was potatoes. Um, so uh, potatoes worked their way through through Europe, eventually made found their way to Ireland um, and became um, a, a really so this is like 1800s. Uh, this was a became essentially like a staple for for the Irish people. And that has to do partially because of um, there's some like economics and like social sociological stuff that I don't have like the firmest grasp on, but basically um, at this point, Ireland was still a part of the UK. And so the land was owned by English people who were basically like absentee landlords and sent, um, sent, uh, I want to call them ruffians, but I mean, people to like enforce, you know, mm -hmm. uh, collecting of um, like crops and money uh, to satisfy the landlords. So the, the Irish were, um, they were, you know, planting or growing things like wheat. That's the stuff that like sold really well and, or, you know, that they could get the most money for. Um, but then they were able to grow potatoes that were kind of hidden. And so when, when these, I'm just going to stick with ruffians now, when these <laughs> ruffians came to collect, um, you know, they would take the wheat and either they didn't know or didn't care to look for, you know, maybe what these, you know, big green bushy plants were producing uh, because it wasn't, you know, you don't really think much about like the green berries on a potato plant because, you know, th they knew essentially that those are not, um, they're not, they're poisonous basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so it was kind of the, the Irish people's way of, you know, securing that they would have enough nourishment for the year. And it actually um, led to, I believe it was 
from like 1800 to 1840 or so, um, the Irish population doubled from, I think it was four, uh, I don't remember if it's 4 million to 8 million or 2 million to 4 million, but regardless it doubled. And there's, you know, some different things that people, you know, uh, hypostulate could be the cause of that. And one of them being the fact that they had this really stable, high caloric, high protein food source in the potatoes. So, you know, they, they relied on the potatoes for, I mean, for, for their life. I mean, potatoes meant life for them in the 1840s, 1800s. We were joking about the Samwise Gamgee's line from Lord of the Rings before the show started. (laughs) And you, you can do so much with potatoes. There's, there's a lot. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I had potatoes for lunch today. (laughs) Uh, did I, um, no, I did, but I have them like all the time. Like, yeah. and that's like a Midwestern diet too. It's like meat and potatoes. Like you, that's what I was raised on and a, mm-hmm. and a veggie usually something mm-hmm. green. Um, okay. So, uh, it kind of unfortunate circumstances why Ireland is really tied to the potato, but they made it their own. It became a staple crop for them. When did things start going South and uh, what was like the sign that, uh, something's wrong here. The, the potatoes don't look good. It was 1845. Um, and they first noticed, um, some, you know, of the above ground symptoms of, um, I mean, they, they, at that point just called it a disease. Um, you know, they, they've recognized that the plant isn't behaving or looking as normal. So they knew enough to call it a disease, but they, they had no idea what was going on. Essentially, you know, plants were kind of like shriveling up, um, dying, uh, just kind of melting is like the best way to describe what Mm -hmm. this pathogen does to the potato plants. They just kind of melt. Um, um, but they, you know, were, they dug up the tubers and the tubers were seemingly unaffected. Um, so, you know, they were able, and and granted, like at this point, not all of the potatoes were affected. It was, you know, a little more scattered, but, um, at this point there was, there were some environmental conditions that favored the disease development as well. Um, and, but, you know, they, they still were able to harvest some potatoes, but, you know, granted not as much as they needed, but they found ways they kind of like, they, they threw their potatoes in storage. They found ways to like, you know, make, make ends meet and, you know, fulfill their sustenance needs. Um, but then the issue comes when the, the, they need to plant the tubers in the following year. Um, and, uh, and, you know, well, and also I guess during the winter too, you know, they're finding their stores of potatoes, you know, some of them are rotting. So they're trying to save some of the potatoes. I might've said tomatoes at some point, but I definitely mean potatoes. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, so 1845 was the start of it. Um, and the, the first person, didn't actually like die as a result of starvation in Ireland until, um, I think it was like August of 1846. Um, but it all went downhill from there. Um, in 1846, they had kind of the same thing. They had fewer tubers to start with. And so, you know, less 
planted, um, more disease, again, high environmental or high favorability from the environmental conditions. Um, and between that point in August when the first person died in 1846 um, to, um, I forget at one po what point in 1847, there were a million people that died as a result of the Irish potato famine and um, also a million people that immigrated. Um, and then, you know, there's some of this like socioeconomic issues that are like tied into all of that as well. Um, they, uh, <laughs> despite, you know, the fact that, you, you know, they, they were still forced to continue growing wheat and sending it off. So like, you know, the, the landlords were more worried about collecting what was due to them than ensuring that their tenants were, um, were able to survive. Um, and, I don't know, is just really devastating and a mess. And I, I think that, well, so I did see that um, it's, well, so I'm curious first, um, if you, Chris, and or you can, can attribute any Irish um, heritage in your family? Um, according to my parents, I am German. Okay. According to the genetics tests that I've taken, and my dad's adopted and he's never learned his, right. his uh, genetic parents, but according to the genetics test I'm taking, I'm like 80% Irish. So. Whoa, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very Irish, apparently, uh, not as German as I thought I was. Huh. Ken, or what, where's your yes. backgrounds lie? Uh, Irish, German, some other things thrown in there. <clears throat> yeah, and I know, well, so I, as far, I don't, I haven't taken the genetic test. I know, I mean, Harbach is very obviously German. Um, so I don't know about me, but I know like my partner, um, like her family has some, um, some Irish roots as well. So, you know, that they talk about, you know, 40 plus million people in America can claim some sort of Irish heritage. And that largely has to do with the, the mass immigration as a result of the, the Irish potato famine, um, which I think they, I think maybe they just call the great famine, but I've, I'm habituated to calling it the Irish potato famine because mm -hmm. it, you know, was largely because of the, the loss of the potato. Mm -hmm. Um, and also one of the cool, okay. Hate it's not a silver lining. It's just something good that came out of this was, um, the actual like discovery and like the first time of actually like putting a name and a cause to something. Um, so, um, there's a German scientist named Anton DeBerry who, um, who, investigated this late blight well this this what whatever was going on with potatoes they didn't know what it was yet um and you know scientists previously um had looked at it and they just attributed this like fuzzy growth as a result of like as a result of the plants dying and not causing the plants to die but anton de berry was the first one to um to actually essentially prove that the fuzzy stuff that was growing on the plants was what was causing the plants to die and not a result of 
the plants dying. So he's, he's the regarded as the father of plant pathology. Um, he is, um, so as obviously, pardon me, devastating as the Irish potato famine is, it also is kind of the jumping off point for the study of plant diseases. It's, it's one of those things like we have to figure out what's happening or there's a lot more people that um, possibly starve. And, and you had mentioned uh, before the show another story about how this yeah. disease reared its head again in World War One. Uh, what yeah. was that? Well, so first I want to do a plug for this book. Like I said, it's not in print anymore, but it is a like really fun read and it and it um, captures um, a lot of the different historical, uh, significant impacts of plant diseases is called famine on the wind. Um, it's written by G L carefoot and ER Sprott. Um, again, it's not in print. So like, you know, you can tell this is an old book by the cover the pages, but you know, you might be able to find a copy on like Amazon or eBay or something. Um, but in preparing for the show, I was reading up on, you know, making sure that I like knew my facts about the, the Irish potato famine. And, um, you know, in all of my like learning, like past learning and hearing about the Irish potato famine, um, or, and, and the like significance of light blight, I, I learned something from this book that I never knew that, you know, we, we think mostly of, you know, 18, the 1840s and the Irish potato famine, as we think about the significance of light blight. But this book actually outlines another very significant historical um, incidents where late blight, I mean, possibly altered the, the course of history. So the Germans um, in World War I, um, at that point, there were um, there was still a pretty heavy reliance on potatoes in the diet. And, um, it was like 18 or sorry, geez, please, 1915. I think they had like an incredible potato harvest. And so they, um, they, instead of like they, well, they didn't have enough room on the farms to store the potato potatoes. So they stored the extra potatoes in cities, essentially in places where that aren't suitable for potato storage. Um, and you know, if you're storing somewhere, ideal storage for potato is like cool and dry. You've mm -hmm. got cool and dry conditions. You are, you know, doing something to help prevent any possible post harvest like flare-ups of post-harvest diseases. Wherever they stored the potatoes in the cities was not cool and dry because, um, you know, they started to like smell, ha have the smell of rot. Um, there was a brief anecdote about like kids actually getting out of school because it smelled so bad. And then like mm -hmm. the teachers and stuff had to help clean out the, uh, the potato storage areas. Cause they were just rotten. They late blight had, um, you know, there was some tubers affected obviously with late blight. Um, and, improper storage led to just like a complete rot of, you know, this surplus of potatoes that they had. Um, and they actually, um, 
it was like 700,000 people starved um, as a result of, um, you know, that lack of, of food and lack of sustenance and that that that's uh, that that had a like impact on morale of the the soldiers and just like the general outlook overall um which i think i mean it sounds like i mean and i i would believe it likely changed the course of of history of mm-hmm. the you know changed the tides in that war oh that's fascinating so uh, don't store your potatoes in steam tunnels. That's probably <laughs> bad. I, I'm just yeah. assuming that's where they put them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. That's yeah. just that. That's fascinating. So we've talked, we've talked rust. That's a fungus. We've mm-hmm. talked um, the late blight. Is that a bacteria? That's an oomycete. So it's a oh, fungal like oh, my organism. favorite. Yes. Oh, oh, my favorite. Oh, yes. oh, oh. Love it. I can imagine. I can't imagine how bad that was smell. I mean, one rotten tomato or one rotten potato is bad enough, but exactly. At least it wasn't like bacterial soft rot. That's what really stinks. But, but <laughs> anything that's rotten is going to smell bad. And we're in, in grad school, we do some trials and stuff and cantaloupe uh-huh. and walking through fields with rotten cantaloupes. Oh, yeah, yeah, to this yeah. day, I can't mm. eat cantaloupe. Just, <laughs> just thinking about it, I can smell it and just... <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> yeah, is that that bacterial soft rot and stuff get in? Yeah. There and, yeah. Oh, that's. That's what nightmares are made of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll get away from stinky stuff here. Um, <laughs> so tulip mania um, is often, is a lot of times referred to as one of the first financial bubbles, if not the first. Um, that kind of collapse of all of that. Uh, a lot of money was was being spent on tulip bulbs back in the day, and a lot of money was lost because of this. Um, so was that the, this tulip mania uh, driven by some diseases as well? There, there definitely was like a factor of plant diseases in tulip mania. I will admit that like largely, you know, it's still kind of mostly an economic phenomenon and maybe a little less of a plant disease phenomenon, but there was a factor of plant diseases in this whole tulip mania. Um, so tulips, um, like rose in popularity and kind of became a status symbol in the Netherlands in the like late 1500s into 1600s. Um, and, you know, it was basically like the more tulips you have, the like people could kind of like tell oh, this person's better off. Um, and, you know, so they, they were collecting different kinds, different colors of tulips, but then you know, occasionally they would have the incidence of a tulip that looks like um, those in my background. Uh, they they call them like a f- flame flame tulips because they kind of I mean with like the the streaking or what we we now call color breaking um, kind of gives an effect where it looks like these tulips are kind of on fire, but it's just a cool color. Um, mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, they obviously didn't know this at the time. And again, this is a 1600. So we're talking pre, pre, like really anything with microbiology, let alone like plant pathology. Um, But, you know, we later found out that, you know, these, it, the symptom is caused by a virus called uh, tulip break virus, um, which causes this, um, this distinct 
color breaking in the flowers. Um, but they didn't know that, you know, they, they saw these tulips and they're like, Ooh, these are so cool. And I mean, I, I think the same thing. I, they're really cool looking. Um, but, um, you know, so tulips like these, we're talking, you know, all tulips were expensive, but if you could get your hands on one of these bulbs or contract for one of these bulbs, um, you know, those were like the most expensive. So, um, you know, tulip biology, these, some of these bulbs don't actually produce flowers for like six or seven years. Um, people are getting, or like, instead of like having like the tangible tulip bulbs, you know, they're, they're doing, um, I think they called it like future contracts, essentially like the, the, what is like the modern day version of a future contract. Um, so, you know, they would pay someone for a contract and this contract says, you know, you will get this tulip, you know, when it is ready, basically. So tulips being the hot commodity, the hot status thing that they were, um, you know, you can have this contract or you could sell it and make a profit before, you know, you can, you like snag the tulip. So that's kind of where things went with the tulip trade. People just kept selling these contracts. Um, and I, I, I do think that the, the like tulip breaking virus, um, you know, these, uh, these, tulip bulbs are going to be less vigorous over time. So, you know, if people did get a bulb that had, um, come from a tulip break virus flower, um, those aren't going to be as vigorous and last as long. So that's one of the problems, but isn't, I think the biggest problem is still the financial stuff. Um, because they just in general are essentially like hedging their bets that, um, this thing that really doesn't have any real worth, um, they're, they're hedging their bets that it's continue to increase in value. So as they do this over time, um, you know, eventually people are like, maybe this doesn't have, you know, the value. Right. And so like the, the tulip market crashed pretty much overnight. Um, you know, it was like climbing, 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 um, in, I think it was 1636. Um, it was nearing its peak. And then, um, it was like, like a February 3rd or something in, uh, 1637. It just plummeted because the, the people who were doing the, the like selling of the contracts, um, they just like kind of decided like, maybe it's not worth as much. And so, you know, once somebody starts to decide that it's not worth as much, that trend continues. And so it, it was, it was this bubble, it popped. Um, but, uh, so while plant disease isn't playing like a, a significant role, I mean, the fact that tulips, people saw tulips like this and thought that it was worth, you know, like an, an entire, like, like five houses or like three years worth of salary at that point. Like, I mean, that's insane. I can't imagine ever attributing that much value to something. I mean, maybe like 
a really big tree, <laughs> but but like a, a small little herbaceous ornamental that flowers for like a small window in each year. Can you imagine? That the, the deer will just probably wind up eating or a squirrel yeah. will dig up. Yeah. I, yeah. So the way you describe it, it's like, so it's like the fool's marketplace. Um, if it's foolish to buy a tulip for hundreds of thousands of dollars, you just have to find someone more foolish to buy it for, you know, a million dollars. So it's, it's just, been... and then, like you said, they decided, <laughs> no, you ran out of fools. And so then the market crashes and they're beautiful tulips though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been likened to um, like the housing crash in the 2000s and then like the Bitcoin bubble. And I, I would even argue even like probably where NFTs are going um, is very similar to um, to tulip mania. But I will say that um, the, the tulips that you will see nowadays with this color breaking symptom um, are bred for. So you don't have to worry about like, you know, if you want a tulip that's pretty like this now, you can buy one that's going to be completely healthy without virus. It's important for me to put that out there because they are beautiful flowers. I am also a big tulip fan. Um, And yeah, so you can get healthy, beautiful, (laughs) color broken flowers that are free of the virus now, but you can also get them for much cheaper. (laughs) Ken and I, we've both mortgaged our houses and we've invested our retirement funds in tulips. So, oh boy, good uh, luck to you. Holding out for next tulip mania. That's right. <laughs> oh, yay, yay. Good well, luck. I, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I don't know if I know what to do with uh, retirement money if I would ever get some. So, right. Um, <laughs> spy tulips. That's, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> That's what I'll do. Um, so Chelsea, we've talked about all kinds of diseases today um, uh, through the history of all the impacts and how they've influenced things and, and such. I mean, lots of people have died because of this. Lots of people have had their lives ruined because of this. Um, have we learned anything? What, what have we learned that can make it so that this doesn't keep happening? I think, you know, some of what we learned is the, the importance and significance. Well, first of all, you know, we've learned that plant diseases are a thing. We know that microbes exist. Um, But then I think, you know, one of the biggest things that we've learned is the importance of like cultural management and like in helping to like either mitigate or prevent diseases. Um, So, you know, if we go back to stem uh, wheat rust, wheat stem rust. There we go. Uh, you know, the, the fact that they're, they're able to breed for varieties of wheat that are resistant, um, that, you know, there are also, you know, epidemiologists that have done a lot of work to try and like predict when some of these diseases might be more problematic, which will allow for, you know, timely fungicide sprays. Um, and then in the case, case of the potato, I think one of the things I didn't touch on in the Irish potato famine, one of the things that factored into this too, is that they grew a single cultivar of potato Mm. all throughout. There was no diversity in, in the, the genetics of the potatoes they were, they were cultivating. Um, so, you know, 
not only is like monoculture is not a great idea if you can avoid it, um, but also, you know, diversity of genetics within, you know, that single species that you're cultivating can be really important in, you know, mitigating or managing plant diseases. And then, you know, on the topic of storage, you know, proper storage of, um, of things like things that you harvest in store. So like, you know, you're not going to harvest a tulip. Well, I mean, the bulbs you would store, but, but things that you eat, especially like things that are like fresh market produce, like proper storage of that stuff for like to manage for any post-harvest pathogen is going to, is critically important. And there's a lot of people who do, you know, research on working to improve some of that stuff. Um, and then as far as the tulips go, um, I think we've learned, uh, maybe don't give into the hysteria <laughs> and maybe try to like, like maintain a little bit of a level mind. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I guess like I'm, I'm a cautious person when it comes to economics. So who's to say, you know, if I would have given into this back then, but I like to think that I wouldn't, but I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, I probably, I don't know, I guess realistically, I probably would have given into it. And then I would have been financially ruined because of a tulip in the 1600s, but you would have had a nice little snack though, after uh, <laughs> you lost your house and everything else. And you'd be like, well, I can eat it at least. Look at this little bowl. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and, and like I mentioned, the, um, the, the Irish potato famine was the, the catalyst for the, um, the study of plant diseases too. So we've gone, you know, far and beyond, um, as far as like developing and trying to determine ways to manage plant diseases. But my favorite are the cultural practices. And so I think that's kind of what we take out of all of this, some of the different, um, cultural things that we can do to help mitigate and manage and or prevent plant diseases. Well, that is a lot of great information for us, whether we're growing wheat, potatoes, or tulips, and so many other things out there too. So uh, Chelsea Harbach, commercial ag educator, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me again. I, I love talking about plant diseases and this is, I, I like history too. So this stuff is like the coolest to me. And I'm just jazzed to talk about people who also like it. Well, we might mark this as part one of a multi-part series here of, uh, we'll see what's next up in your, your chapter of famine and the wind. Cause I am like, I, I have to find that book somehow. So I'm going to be hunting, hunting around for that. Well, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited this week by Katie Parker. Oh, we miss Katie, but uh, she will be here in spirit editing away. Um, Ken Johnson, thank you so much for being with us this week. Good to see you, Ken. You too. Thanks, Chelsea. It was, it was fun learning more about some of this stuff. And I think we'll definitely have to do at least a part two, if not. Yeah, I got that. some spooky stuff that I can mm. talk about around spooky season. Spooky season. Including, Every... no, I'll talk about oh. this later. I'll talk about this later. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, oh, I'll save it for later. I'll save, for I'll save it. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, this is going to be, this will be a fun uh, part two. So yeah.
save it for then. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, um, I we'll have something for listeners next week, so so don't you worry. I think it'll be a Garden Bite episode by Ken. If I'm looking ahead in the calendar inside my brain, yeah, it'll be um, a surprise. Just yeah, uh, it, surprise surprises Ken next week. We'll see see what the topic is. Well, listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching, and as always, keep on growing. Thank you.